0: What a joy to be gathered together in the uh, presence of God, together as God's dwelling place. And uh, this morning what we want to do is we want to continue our series uh, in Proverbs, and uh, I mistakenly sent in the wrong information. Uh, We want to be looking at uh, Proverbs chapter 22, chapter 22, and we'll be reading from verse 17 until chapter 23, verse 11. I must have been asleep at the wheel when I when I sent the information in, but hopefully not now. <laughs> so we want to look at Proverbs chapter 22, and we'll begin reading in verse 17. So uh, let's uh, give attention to the reading of God's word. Proverbs chapter 22, beginning in verse 17. Hear now the word of God. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your heart to my knowledge, for it will be pleasant if you keep them within you. If all of them are ready on your lips, that your trust may be in the Lord, I have made them known to you today, even to you. Have I not written for you 30 sayings of counsel and knowledge to make you know what is right and true, that you may give a true answer to those who sent you? Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and rob them Uh, and rob of life those who rob them. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, uh, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Be not one of those who give pledges, who put up security for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you?' Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the mor- morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. Do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful uh, that you continually feed us through your word you continually uh, remedy our thirst. So we pray, Lord, that you would give unto us a thirst and hunger for your righteousness and that you would satisfy that hunger and thirst through your word, through Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Even though our passage here uh, addresses the wisdom of Solomon, I want us to fast forward for a few moments and I want us to go to Athens, to the Areopagus, and to the Apostle Paul. If you recall, when the Apostle Paul was in Athens, he was walking through the city streets and he was greatly exercised over the fact that he saw so many idols adorning the various buildings and the streets. And so this drove him to go into the marketplaces to preach the gospel so that people would turn away from their idols and that they would turn to Jesus Christ. It was this turn of events that brought him to Mars Hill because the philosophers there in the marketplace heard him preaching the gospel and they said, hey, we want to hear more about this. We want to invite you, if you will, to give us a presentation uh, on the gospel. And so Paul was off uh, to Mars Hill. Now, what's interesting about the way that he approaches the philosophers at Mars Hill is he takes a different tack than he did with the Jews in the synagogues. There in Acts chapter 17, when Paul was preaching and uh, defending the gospel there before the Jews, he would reason from the scriptures. And it's very clear that he does so. Now, why would he reason from the scriptures? Well, because the Israelites accepted the Old Testament as the authoritative word of God. They not only accepted it, but were familiar with it, and so Paul therefore could appeal to it. But on the other hand, at Mars Hill, uh, the, the Greek philosophers there did not know of the Old Testament scriptures, nor would they accord it authority, nor were they familiar with it. And so in this light, what the Apostle Paul did is he appealed to the general truths that exist in the creation that God has embedded in the creation, and he appealed even to the very Stoic philosophers themselves. In Acts chapter 17, verse 28, he says, even some of your own poets have said, in him we live and move and have our being quoting a Stoic poem, and then he quoted another Greek philosopher, poet, when he said, for we indeed are his offspring. He took the small bits of truth that the Stoic philosophers knew, these small delicate plants that were planted in otherwise barren soil of deceit, And he transplanted these small truths that they knew because of the light of nature that God had shown upon them in spite of their sin-fallen condition. And he transplanted these small plants of truth into the fertile soil of the gospel of Christ so that when illuminated by the light of the Holy Spirit and through the gift of faith, people would be able to believe. So Paul knew that God's truth uh, was everywhere, not only in the scriptures, but there were general truths there in the creation. And so this is why Paul appealed to it. Well, Paul was not the first one to do so. Solomon did it long before the apostle Paul ever did. Here, as we cross over into Proverbs chapter 22, or 23, uh, and uh, sorry, 22, verses 17 and following, perhaps your Bibles have this subheading, words of the wise, words of the wise. And then in chapter uh, 22, verse 20, notice that Solomon says, have I not written for you 30 sayings of counsel and knowledge? So here Solomon is invoking 30 sayings But what we know about these 30 sayings is that they were not original to Solomon, but rather they came from an Egyptian sage by the name of Amenemope. That's his name. I didn't make it up. Sounds funny. But his name was Amenemope, and Amenemope predated Solomon by at least a century, So remember, as the Apostle Paul could appeal to the Greek philosophers and take the truth that they knew, but transplant it so that it would flourish in the soil of the gospel, so too Solomon could appeal to an Egyptian sage, take the truths that he was uh, aware of, truths that exist in the creation, and transplant them into the fertile soil of the gospel. Now we know of this, because the book of first kings chapter 4 tells us that solomon was a part of an international community of sages of wise men first kings chapter 20 or sorry first kings chapter 4 verse 30 so that solomon's wisdom surpassed all the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of egypt well, how would you know that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of the people of the East and the wisdom of the people of Egypt unless you had read it? For he was wiser, 1 Kings 4.31, than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite and Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. So what Solomon does as he takes these 30 sayings and he incorporates them into the book of Proverbs. But it's important that we note two very important things. First, the wisdom that he incorporates from this Egyptian poet or this Egyptian sage is ultimately God's wisdom. It's God's wisdom that he imparts into the creation, and even unto human beings, okay? So it's God's wisdom, first and foremost. Secondly, I don't have the time to show this in the message this morning, but there are key points where Solomon purposefully removes elements. He removes elements of these 30 sayings, particularly those that attribute the wisdom of uh, of this sage to the Egyptian gods, he cuts those out. Just as Paul says, you worship the unknown God, let me make him known to you, and he points them to Jesus Christ. And so here, first, this is God's truth, and secondly, uh, Solomon purposefully cuts out all references to the Egyptian gods, and he points his sons, and indeed even us, to the one true living God. So just as Paul took the, uh, the, these truths from the, the Stoic philosophers and transplants them into the fertile soil of the gospel. So Solomon does the same thing. He does not merely copy these things straight over, but rather he corrects them so that we can see the wisdom of God in Christ clearly unobscured by the clouds of sin. Now, that being said, what we want to look at this morning is this first section of the 30 sayings where we're going to look at about 11 of them, okay, 11 of the first 30 sayings. But in that, what Solomon gives us is his 10 commandments, if you will, of wealth and wisdom. And I'll give them to you so that you can note them. And then we'll look at them as we make our way through the passage. First of all, do not rob the poor, verse 22. Make no friends with people given to anger, verse 24. Number three, be not one who gives pledges, verse 26. Uh, Number four, do not move ancient landmarks, verse 28. Number five, imitate skillful people, verse 29. Number six, do not desire the delicacies of the wealthy, chapter 23, verse 3. Number seven, do not toil to acquire wealth, verse 4 of chapter 23. Number eight, do not eat the bread of a stingy man, chapter 23, verse 6. Number nine, do not speak to a fool, verse 9 of chapter 23. And then number 10, do not move the landmark of an orphan, verse 10 of chapter 23. These are the 10 commandments of wisdom, if you will, wisdom concerning uh, wealth and life. And so let's look at these 10 commandments and we wanna do so under three headings. First, under the idea of theft, not taking from others. Second, under the wisdom of needing to associate with the wise. And then third and finally, the commandments that deal chiefly, among other things, with character. So theft, association, and character. So let's first give thought to what Solomon has to say in these Ten Commandments of Wisdom on Wealth about theft. And that here he talks about not stealing. And I think often it's the case that when we think of theft, when we think of stealing, We often think in very simple terms, and I think that's understandable. We think of the burglar breaking into somebody's house in the middle of the night. We think of the carjacker uh, taking a car or a vehicle at gunpoint. We think of the masked gunman robbing a bank. But here Solomon, I think, is trying to clue us in to more subtle forms of theft He says in chapter 22, verse 28, do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. Now, this might not strike us immediately as theft, but it is, and it was a subtle form of it. Uh, just, Just this week, just the other day, I read an article in the news about a man who had lost a case in court where his neighbor had intentionally, unintentionally encroached upon his land because she built a goat pen over his property line. And so then the goat pen existed there for nearly a decade and he realized this is on my property. He went to remove the goat pen. The woman said, that's my goat pen. You can't take it. You can't move it. Let's go to court. They went to court and the judge awarded possession of the land to the woman. Not, she was not the original owner. And this man lost $125,000 worth of property because the goat pen had extended over into his land. Uh, and she, she either directly or indirectly, purposefully, uh, you know, by accident, took the land and the court awarded the land to her. Now, let's not get into the particulars of that case. I don't know all of the details. I'm not a lawyer, uh, although maybe sometimes I try to impersonate one. But the idea here is, is that what Solomon is saying is this very type of thing. He says, don't move an ancient landmark. Because what happens if you move, what would happen is that people in, the, uh, in Israel could be surreptitious. They could be, um, they could be sneaky. They might move a landmark a foot and then a month later, move it another foot. And then another month later, move it another foot. And then, before you know it, with the passage of time, you've taken a significant portion of your neighbor's land without them really even noticing it. One of the reasons why this man did not notice uh, the encroachment upon his property of this goat pen is because he wasn't there on the property regularly. He lived in another state and then would visit the property from time to time. And before you know it, this woman had taken a portion of his land. Chapter 23, verse 10 gives a similar warning, but Solomon specifically mentions, don't move landmarks, especially of the fatherless. I think in this particular case, he's saying, don't take advantage of orphans. Don't take advantage of orphans. And so if you are unscrupulous, you could surreptitiously move the landmark and steal land from your neighbor. Now, in addition to these two commands, Solomon tells his sons not to give a pledge when they have no money in chapter 22, verses 26 and 27. I think he's saying, don't try to make easy money. Don't try to make easy money. Don't put up a pledge For your neighbor's investment when you have no money to back it, all in the hopes that you might be able to turn a quick profit. And then, of course, in chapter 22, verse 22 do not rob the poor says Solomon. In other words, when the poor is down, don't add to their misery by taking from them. You might think, "Hey, this is easy. They can't take me to court. They can't they can't stop me because they're weak, so I'll continue to take from them." And Solomon says, "No, don't rob from the poor. Don't move landmarks. Don't look for easy money. Don't rob the poor." What's the underlying Spiritual truth that Solomon wanted his, uh, his sons to learn, he, want his, he wants us to learn, is that as it pertained especially to the land, the land was God's gift to the people. He was the one who apportioned it out. It says in Genesis 35:12, "The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you by stealing the land." They were saying, Oh Lord, you have not given us enough. By stealing the land, they were saying, I'm going to try to take my neighbor's God-given inheritance. By taking from the poor, they're saying, Oh Lord, you have given me, you have given me an insufficient amount of wealth I need to take from others. And yet, within the, the overall economy of redemption, we have to understand that the land was simply a placeholder. The land was supposed to point them to something greater, not just simply to some earthly possession, but ultimately the inheritance that they were to receive through the gospel of Christ. Hebrews 11.10, what does the author of Hebrews say about the significance of the land to the patriarchs? He, Abraham, was looking for a city whose foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham was not focused upon the land. The land was a mere placeholder to draw his attention to God, who was his ultimate treasure, his ultimate source of blessing, and the fountain of his inheritance. It's Peter who says in 1 Peter 1.4, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What Solomon is saying is he's saying, Don't get caught up in the lust for material and for money. These are mere placeholders. As Paul would say to the Colossians, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Are we going to follow Solomon's counsel? Are we going to set our mind on the things of heaven? Do we pray to Christ to say, give me a greater desire for the inheritance that comes through you than in any amount of wealth that I might accumulate, either here by honest means Or by dishonest means. And I think here, note that if we have our hearts set on Christ in the heavens, that does not mean, therefore, that we will become so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good. If our hearts and minds are set upon Christ in the heavens, and we love Him more than any earthly treasure, how does that shape our conduct here? We preserve boundary markers. We look out for the interests of the poor. We'll look out for widows. Because rather than trying to steal from them or to steal from others, we'll say, the Lord has taken care of me. He has blessed me abundantly. How can I therefore take care of you? How can I help you out of the abundance that Christ has given to me? I think the second chief theme that we see here is in Solomon's Ten Commandments about wealth and about life are being wise about our associations. With whom do we associate and will they make us better or will they make us worse? More specifically, I think, do we associate with heavenly-minded people who look to Christ as their source of life and contentment, or do we associate with earthly-minded people who are only concerned with temporal things, with money, with advancing themselves? And so in this vein, Solomon says in chapter 22, in verses 24 and 25, He says, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Do you see a theme here? Do you see what Solomon is saying in the sense that what he's saying positively versus negatively? He's saying, don't rob, don't steal from the poor. Don't associate with angry people. It's almost as if he's saying, those who are angry are those who steal. And those who steal are those who are angry. Don't associate with them. Why? Because what's the possible danger? Because you might end up doing the same. You might learn from their anger. And in learning from their anger, you become an angry, impatient, self-centered person. The angry person, I think what Solomon would say, most likely does not have the Spirit of Christ indwelling them, enabling them to to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, to manifest love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and self-control. Notice how many of those fruits of the Spirit relate especially to anger and not giving a foot to it. A Christian who is easily angered, I think, has lost sight of God's patience and love and the grace that he or she has received in Christ. Regardless of whether it's an unbeliever or a Christian who is perhaps struggling with controlling his or her temper, such people can all too easily influence us and influence us in a bad way. And so Solomon's advice is, is, Don't associate with such a one. Don't associate with such a one. Which the implied message is, on the contrary, on the the flip side of that is, associate with those who have self-control. In other words, ask yourself, are the people in my life pointing me to Christ? Are they encouraging me to manifest the fruit of the Spirit? Are they spurring me on to make me better? Or am I associating with people that make me worse? I think here in verse 29 is why you can say that we have perhaps the flip side of this coin when on the one hand he says, make no friendship given over to anger. But on the other hand, what does he say? Do you see a skillful uh, a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. I think Solomon has in view skillful, um, skillful craftsmen. In other words, he's saying, associate with good people. Associate with those who are skillful. It's not just about uh, admiring their work. It's not just simply about their ability to manipulate material in order to make beautiful art. Rather, I think it's because what Solomon is saying is these type of people exhibit the characteristics that you need to adopt and in this case patience how many times you know it's like my wife was uh, traveling in the delta a couple of weeks ago or last weekend and uh, she went into a museum and she showed me this picture that she saw and maybe you've seen it maybe you've been to this place i'm not exactly sure where she saw it but it's a, it's like a collection and it looks like paintbrushes, and you go and look at the wall, and you see all of these paintbrushes, and you think, well, why are these paintbrushes you know, here? I mean, that doesn't seem very artistic. And then she says, they're all carved out of wood. And uh, so you know, then you all of a sudden see it and, it, and it's a paintbrush, or it's a paintbrush and a pair of pliers, but it's all one piece of wood, and it's been carved out of wood. To me... I don't have the patience for that. I think I would end up stabbing myself. (laughs) In fact, anytime I get a knife out, the kids all run. They're like, watch out, dad's got a knife. Everybody run. Uh, And it's, you know, go to the emergency room because you're yourself one time and then nobody trusts you again with sharp objects. But I don't have the patience. And I think what Solomon is saying is he's saying, look at the patience that is involved there. That's the kind of character that you need. Why? Because this type of person will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. In other words, people will recognize him. He will stand before the important. He's not going to be somebody that's easily angered and oppressing the poor. And in fact, this this paintbrush carving artist, uh, his work is in the Smithsonian. My wife found this out because she was able to call him and talk to him. But so there's, you know, there's a sense in which his work is standing before the important. But to what end, to what end does a godly person steer you? Does one who is patient, who doesn't strike out in anger, what's the goal? Notice what Solomon says in verse 9. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. I think Jesus gives us similar advice when he says in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter seven, verse six, do not give the dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls to the pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. By refraining from associating with people that are easily angered, associating with the skillful, and I don't think he just has artisanship in view, but ultimately that those who are skilled in wisdom You will learn wisdom to know who to associate, who not to associate, when to speak in the presence of someone, when not to speak in the presence of someone. You will have the God-given wisdom through Christ to know when to speak, when not to speak, what to say, if to say, how to say, when you do say. You know, sometimes my wife will ask me about a person, whether it was at, at, at seminary or whether it was in the pastorate, are you going to speak to so-and-so about such-and-such a thing? And sometimes I'd say yes, but sometimes I'd say no. And she says, why not? I said, because I don't think they have the ears to hear at the moment. They're not in a place to be able to hear what I have to say. And I think that, that's, 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 that that is a type of diagnosis that, that requires wisdom. Because we can talk all we want sometimes to somebody, but if they don't have the ears to hear, if they're not ready to listen, it'll be like talking to a brick wall. And so this is why Solomon says, do not speak in the hearing of the fool or he will despise the good sense of your words. The only way you're going to have that kind of wisdom is by associating with the skillful, the the wise, those who point you to Christ so that Christ through the gospel can give us the necessary wisdom that we need to live in a wise manner, to know when to speak and when not to speak. The third and final, I think, theme that we find in these Ten Commandments on wealth and life are the importance of character. In that, it's important here that with, uh, you know, as we live the Christian life, Solomon tells his sons three things and three commands in verses 3, 4, and 6 of chapter 23. Don't desire the delicacies of a ruler. Do not toil to acquire wealth. And do not eat the bread of a stingy man. I think what Solomon is saying here is he's saying, sons, and by extension us, Recognize that every moment in your life is an interview. Every moment in your life is an interview. You know, there there have been times where I, I, I try to tell my sons this, my daughter this. I want to say people are always watching. And you may not realize it, but you may be interviewing for your next job when you least expect it. So if you show up to an event dressed like a slob, you may not realize it, but you may have just blown an impromptu interview with somebody who was considering to hire you. You just don't know it. Show up dressed well, act responsibly, don't act like a fool, and maybe your future boss will say, hey, I I see that that, that that young man or that young woman I'm really impressed by them. I want to talk to them. I think that that young man or young woman might be the person I want to hire for my company. In other words, when he says in verse 3, do not desire the delicacies, uh, his d- delicacies, he's saying here, when you're sitting down, 23 verse 1, when you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what's before you. Don't act foolishly. Don't overeat. Don't dominate the conversation or don't act in a manner that might reveal your foolish inclinations. The king is watching. Speak few words, eat responsibly, defer to others, demonstrate that you're neither a slave nor do you worship wealth. And this is why he says there in verse 4, do not toil to acquire great wealth Be discerning enough to desist. In other words, don't make wealth your idol. People will see it. If you go before the king and you act and play the part of the fool, somebody who is hungering and thirsting for wealth rather than the wisdom and righteousness of Christ, people will see it. People will observe it. And in this case, I think what Solomon is saying, wealth ultimately comes from God. It does not come just simply by your hard work, although certainly that is required. I think moreover, in in trying to associate with the wealthy, fools put on a good show. But in the hospitality that they show, a lot of people are often, often grumbling inside because Others are consuming their bread. In other words, notice what Solomon says. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do do not desire his delicacies. Be wise enough to recognize when somebody's putting on a show and they're trying to pretend that they're wealthy, uh, don't desire their bread. Because in the end, they may say, sure, eat freely. But inside, they're grumbling inside because they don't want you eating their precious food. What Solomon is saying is he's saying develop the character to not only to be able to see through the charades that others put on, but that you yourself would exhibit the character of humility and of wisdom. Paul says something similar in Romans 12.3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Romans 12:16 Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So when you sit down with the wealthy or in Solomon's case when you sit down to eat with a ruler are you acting the part of the fool? Are you desiring their delicacies? Are you hungering and thirsting for wealth? Or do you conduct yourself in a humble and a Christ-like fashion, not desiring the wealth of of the wealthy, not desiring the wealth of the ruler, but rather simply desiring to show forth the wealth that comes to us in Christ, showcasing the wisdom of Christ to all who are there to see In other words, what Solomon is saying is he's saying, dear sons, cultivate humility, not desiring great wealth uh, and, and, and much money, but rather the treasure that comes only through God in Christ. I think in all of these commands, most of them echo the wisdom of Amenemope. But what sets Solomon apart From the Egyptian sage is the fertile ground in which he plants them. I think Solomon plants these 30 sayings, these first 10 commandments that we see here, and he plants them in the soil of the wisdom of Christ. And here, as we look at them, we know that they find their goal, they find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Apart from Christ, we can say that these sayings are wise. But they certainly do not rise to the level of heaven. But within the context of the gospel, Solomon shows us that the final goal of wisdom is not merely living wisely, but living unto the glory of God through the power of Christ. I think if we were to summarize Solomon's Ten Commandments here, we can say that they're signposts that point us to Christ in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And only when we seek God's wisdom in Christ will he equip us to live our lives well unto his glory and not in the foolish or immoral pursuit of wealth, station, or influence. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you have given unto us Christ he who, humanly speaking, was in possession of great wealth and indeed the glory of heaven itself, but he who is rich became poor for our sakes so that we might be rich in him. O oh, Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom, not foolishly to pursue wealth, even perhaps immorally so, but that we would be contented with what you have given us in Christ that we would recognize that we have a great inheritance and that all of the temporal and uh, worldly possessions that we have are gifts from you that are supposed to remind us of that ultimate gift that you have given us in Christ, salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. We pray, Father, that you would give us wisdom when it comes to association, that you would cause us to seek out godly saints That point us to Christ, that model humility and skill in wisdom, that we would desire to emulate them as they emulate Christ, and that collectively, O Lord, we would bring glory to you. We also pray, Father, that you would shape our character and mold us in the shape of Christ, a cruciform shape, O Lord, where we do not seek great station. Neither do we seek great wealth. Neither do we seek the delicacies of the wealthier royalty. But rather, we have a sober assessment of ourselves, recognizing that we are the recipients of your grace. And only in Christ are we worthy. Not because of ourselves, but because of the great gift that you have given us in Christ. What wonderful manner of love is this, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Oh, Father, we pray that you would pour out your wisdom upon us. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.